Welcome back to Hedagogy's discussion of Dr. Maitland Jones's firing at NYU. Let's pick up where we left off. And so clearly, Jones himself is frustrated at the student engagement, and he sees that there are, and I think can document, in fact, that there are opportunities available to students of which the students certainly were not taking advantage. And have we not all seen this to some degree in at least some students who do not help themselves? We have class, but they don't come to class. There are online lectures, and they don't watch the online lectures. There are office hours, and they don't attend office hours. And then they become frustrated that they are not doing well enough in our courses. At which point, don't we want to say to them, no shit, what did you expect to happen? As you'll see, this matter of coming to class and attending lectures is not as clear-cut as it might seem right now, but I'd be remiss if I did not note Dr. Jones's frustration with it. So that concludes my little part initially on Dr. Jones himself. Now let's take a look at the students. As we look at the students, let's first remember very explicitly, very clearly, the students did not ask for Dr. Jones to be fired. That was the decision made by the administration, and I will speak to that in just a few minutes. What the students asked for was for a fairer class in their estimation of what that should be, and perhaps some better teaching from Dr. Jones. But they did not ask that he be terminated. And I think that speaks to the character of the students. I think it also speaks to their desire, at least to some measure, to want to be successful in organic chemistry. Also, as for students, the article in the Princetonian interviewed some of his former students. Some of those from the earlier days back at Princeton had some very positive things to say, and of course, I don't know what kind of sample bias we have here, but nevertheless, one student, Dr. Evan Tobin from the class of 88, described Jones as, quote, an unbelievable lecturer and said his class was, quote, really hard and it was really great. And another student, Stephanie Morris, also of 88, said, quote, he was a purist. This is a subject that he devoted his life to, and he had the bar very high, and he expected people to meet it. So some students, especially those of earlier days, liked Jones while at the same time still finding him to be exceptionally challenging. But students from NYU, and I don't think it's because they're NYU students per se, but perhaps different students of a different time, said something different. Ella Kim, a senior NYU who took Jones's class, said she, quote, definitely would have signed a petition, and I definitely think it was a good thing that he was fired. I think he was uniquely bad in the way that he didn't really seem to care about students grasping the information, or that he was frustrated in the way that they didn't understand the way he was teaching. The Princetonian also references Grace Pascal, an NYU graduate student who took Jones's class, who said Jones, quote, was not receptive to questions, and I didn't want to open myself for him to be rude to me. And so now we start to see another aspect of this problem emerge. While Jones was probably very well-intentioned, it does seem like his demeanor with the students, his approachability, his connection with the students, certainly was problematic. If we have students who fear being condescended to, criticized, or attacked in some way, then of course they're not going to go to office hours. If we have students who don't find his lectures to be particularly useful, then they very well might not go to those lectures. That still might not be the wisest course of action for those students, but it does speak to why Jones found the House to be at 50% around midterms. 
In short, on some level here, there was a conflict between the students and Dr. Jones. And part of that really does fall on Dr. Jones. It seems as though his demeanor was not particularly approachable. Whether that had changed a bit over the years since he was at Princeton, or whether the students had changed since he was at Princeton, is hard to filter out. And perhaps it was some of both. It's hard to say. And perhaps some of these frictions were resolvable had better communication existed. For example, there was an accusation by the students in the petition that he concealed the course averages from the students. But referencing the New York Times article, Jones contends that he did no such thing. He said that students were aware of their grades, but 25% of the grade relied on lab scores and a final lab test, which were not yet determined, and so he could not give complete course averages. Whether or not that fact would have completely resolved the students' confusion remains unclear, but it doesn't seem like that was all that was afoot, or at least that there was a breakdown in communication between the two parties. But that aside, I think we have to speak to something else here. When there's a breakdown in communication between students and educators, I personally typically put the onus of that more on the educators than on the students. Not entirely. We do sometimes know there are students with whom we fail to successfully bridge the communication gap. Or sometimes, even though we're well-intentioned in trying to communicate, it for whatever reason does not work in a particular class or with a particular group. But I'd like to turn to the actual petition. In their petition, the students wrote two things of which I believe we need to take serious note. First, they said, quote, We are very concerned about our scores and find that they are not an accurate reflection of the time and effort put into the class, end quote. And second, they said, quote, We urge you to realize that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole, end quote. Let's take a look at that first quote. The student said again, quote, We are very concerned about our scores and find that they are not an accurate reflection of the time and effort put into this class, end quote. Well, what are we to do with that? On the one hand, to be fair to the students, if a notable percentage of students are devoting great effort to passing a class and nevertheless are running into a wall, that should be something that makes us all, as educators, stand up and take notice. What's going on there if we have so many students working hard and diligently toward passing a class and nevertheless running into barriers to doing so? The fact that that is occurring certainly needs to make us take notice. On the other hand, the students reference the time and effort they're putting into a class as a measure of what their grade should be. From where does the presumption come that the investment of time and effort necessarily results in the achievement of necessary standards? Yes, the students might have been working very hard. They might have put in considerable effort and considerable time. But what if they're putting in that time and effort and still simply not meeting the standards that needed to be met? Maybe they are simply not good enough at organic chemistry. Maybe their practices are not strong enough for that particular class. And to that, Jones says the following, and I think this is disturbing. Jones speaks directly to the fact that more students aren't being successful in his class not as many students who were successful in previous years when arguably he was teaching roughly the same way. 
He says, quote, as the bottom has fallen out of some of the class, the top is just fine. And indeed, they're doing better than they used to do because the exams and so on have become easier, which is a shame. But I have to admit there's been a certain amount of dumbing down, if you want to use the stock phrase, in my class. And the kids who used to get a 90, which is a very, very strong grade, are now getting 100. I worry that we're not serving the top 10 or 20% very well. They shouldn't be getting 100. They should be getting a 92 and then looking at what those eight missing points were and learning from that. And they're completely capable of doing that. And so while the students are complaining about their time and effort not yielding the grades that they desired, we have Jones speaking very frankly to the class that at least to some degree, he's already dumbed his class down from previous incarnations of it. And that dumbing down may have come from some pressure to do so. Pressure, perhaps, to dumb it down even more. In the Princetonian article, Jones says, quote, I could have made the course easier. I was pressured to do that, but I wouldn't do it, end quote. And so, even though maybe he succumbed to that pressure to a certain degree, On the whole, what we see is Dr. Jones trying to hold the line of standards, at least insofar as he saw them. And if he's saying that he's had to dumb his class down, I think we can take him as a reliable witness for the rigor of his course relative to previous years that he was teaching the same course and the same subject matter to roughly the same age group and population of students. And that brings me to drawing your attention once again to the other quote I read from the petition. And that quote has two factors in it that, for me as an educator of 30 years, make me a little uncomfortable, make me a little disconcerted, perhaps even a little angry. You see, the students said, we urge you to realize that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. Now, don't we all understand and respect the fact that if an institution has classes that no students can pass, that that institution, that class, that educator is not in some way meeting the responsibility of education, which is to educate. That's true. But on the other hand, I'm curious as to students characterizing this scenario as one that reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. When I was an undergrad, circa 1990, to date myself, and a course was particularly hard, or reputed to be particularly hard, and even when I was teaching in the 90s and around the turn of the century, and there were courses not taught by me, nevertheless reputed by the students to be particularly hard, never did I hear the sentiment that the rigor of those courses reflected poorly on the institution. The attitude, rather, was that those rigorous courses upheld the nobility of the institution, that they were rigorous for a reason, and that if the courses were hard, it's because the subject matter was hard. If the courses were hard, it was because the rigor of what needed to be learned in those courses was there because of its impact on later courses. Organic chemistry might be a critical example of that a course of such importance because it builds the foundation for courses to follow. And students who do not master the information in organic chemistry may not then be apt to be able to go on and succeed in courses that follow. And so I wish I had more wisdom for all of you listening as to how to resolve this. 
On the one hand, of course, a class that no one can pass or that only a slim percentage can pass is arguably problematic in itself. Something's not working there in the educational mission, and that needs attention. At the same time, for students to characterize the challenge of that course as reflecting poorly on the department and the institution is not in any way a particular characterization that I ever would have thought to use when I was a student. And I might be foisting upon this interpretation too much of my own perspective on this, but I do fear that these students are somehow seeing rigor differently and as more antithetical to the nobility of education than students of the past. That said, while concerns about all of that language need to be discussed for sure, it's actually another part of that statement by the students. Just a tiny little part of that statement by the students. Just a wee bit of that statement. Just one little hyphenated word that gives me more pause. That a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority. And well-being a priority. Students' well-being as a priority. Without a doubt, I absolutely want all students to enjoy well-being. And in the interest of compassion, in the interest of empathy, in the interest of humanity and humanism... It would be callous and wrong to do anything with flagrant disregard for students' well-being, if not anything, to be sure, that would be an affront to their well-being. But when did the onus fall upon Dr. Jones, if not on any educator, especially at the college level, to design courses and teach in such a way so as to cultivate our students' well-being? Pedagogy will return in just a moment. But first, I want to mention my other podcast, Parentology, which uses insights from neuroscience, psychology, educational theory, and other disciplines to help parents parent better through science. So if you know of any parents at all, I hope you'll recommend that they take a listen to Parentology. More importantly, if you or anyone you know has kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews, or godchildren, please visit the Critical Thinking Institute, which you'll find at thectinstitute.com, the home of Brighter Minds, Better Futures. It's the first program I've ever designed specifically for young people and families. It's born of over 30 years' research into peer-reviewed material from multiple disciplines. It's the most comprehensive program of its kind. It's the only one that features the Institute's unique inside-out critical thinking methodology. And on top of all of that, the program's simply a lot of fun. If you go to the ctinstitute.com and view the previews, I think you'll find that many parents you know will get just as much, if not more, out of the program as their kids. And for a limited time only, Brighter Minds, Better Futures is available at the pre-launch rate of 50% off. No, really, 50% off, but only until December 30th. Just use the code HEDAGOGY. Once again, just tell everyone you know with kids to go to the ctinstitute.com and they can take advantage of 50% off with the code HEDAGOGY. When did the onus fall upon Dr. Jones if not on any educator, especially at the college level, to design courses and teach in such a way so as to cultivate our students' well-being. 
When did our students' well-being become our responsibility as educators? Jones is an organic chemist. His knowledge, his skill set, his expertise, his passion is around organic chemistry. His value to the students and to the institution and to our society is in his capacity to educate about organic chemistry so as to be able to produce more organic chemists who can go on into society to do the things that we very much need organic chemists to be able to do, as well as all the fields from which organic chemistry might be a wellspring. Neither Jones nor most educators overall with perhaps some exceptions being for those at the more developmental stages of kindergarten and grammar school and so forth, are trained or even qualified to cultivate well-being. It's not their expertise, and it shouldn't be their mission, and it shouldn't be the mission of an organic chemistry class to cultivate well-being, to prioritize well-being. Again, it shouldn't be an affront to well-being. We don't want to attack students. We don't want to antagonize their well-being in any way. I'm not suggesting that. But I'll be damned if I'm going to think that we should be constructing courses so as to prioritize well-being. We should be constructing courses to prioritize education. And lest you think that I am some sort of monster here, I am very concerned about students' well-being. What decent human being would I be were I not? And should there be facilities on campuses with experts in doing so to help ensure a student's well-being? Of course. Should the well-being of students be part of the mission of a university? Of course. Should they have resources to help them with the stress, with the challenges, with the rigor, with the emotions, with the psychological struggles that come with engaging challenging, hard, rigorous educational courses like organic chemistry. Absolutely, they should. They should have access to training and study skills and resources and tutoring and psychological help, emotional support, whatever they need, of course, to be successful overall as a human being. We want students to exit not just knowledgeable in a given subject matter, We don't want students who just know things about organic chemistry. We want fully functional, nay, highly functional human beings who are well, who can go on to meet the challenges in life and accomplish things with the knowledge that they have and be happy. But is it Dr. Jones's responsibility to have prioritized his students' well-being? No, I don't think it is. I don't think there's a strong argument for that. And then here's the point which is that if Dr. Jones has been teaching in the same way for his career, and if he confesses to having dumbed his class down to any degree, and if in doing so the students now are still complaining, if they are upset, if they feel as though the rigorous course is reflecting poorly on the chemistry department and the institution, and if they feel as though their time and effort is the critical factor rather than achievement, And if they feel as though the course is not properly prioritizing their well-being, then, while it must be reiterated that Jones clearly is not connecting well with students anymore, some of this onus for the perception of Jones as a poor educator is certainly falling upon the students themselves. However, I want to be careful not to point a finger solely at the students 
not to point the finger solely at Jones. Rather, I think this is just a very complicated situation. But I do think at the same time that Jones's students of today are revealing themselves to be quite different than Jones's students of the past. And so what do we do with that? Well, let's look at what NYU has done with that, because that is the third major lens through which we have to view this, and I think that's going to reveal something as well. To do so, I want to point to NYU spokesperson John Beckman, who said that NYU's decision not to renew Jones's contract emerged from, quote, a very high rate of student withdrawals, end quote, as well as, quote, multiple student complaints about his dismissiveness, unresponsiveness, condescension, and opacity about grading, end quote. I've already addressed some of those concerns by the students and noted, I think, why some of them, at least, are a little misguided, and some of them, to be fair, certainly have some merit. And I will note again that the students did not ask for Dr. Jones to be terminated, even though that was NYU's rather quick decision. But it's this next statement by Beckman that I think is problematic. Quote, in short, Jones was hired to teach and he wasn't successful, end quote. Now, to what extent can we really say that it was Jones who wasn't successful? He has a 60% rate of Bs and As in his class. Only a handful of students actually earned Fs, and they were later able to withdraw. And so can it be said that he was hired to teach and wasn't successful in such a simplistic and stark manner? No, I don't think that's fair. I also wouldn't characterize his teaching as rousingly successful either, but I don't think Beckman's description of it does justice to it. Worse, however, are the words of Mark A. Walters, Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Chemistry Department at NYU, who, in an email to Dr. Jones summing up the situation about his firing, said that the plan going forward would be to, quote, extend a gentle but firm hand to the students and those who pay the tuition bills. Again, that's a gentle but firm hand to the students and those who pay the tuition bills. And at the risk of pointing all too simplistically to some kind of smoking gun, well, maybe there's a gun and it's smoking. If we're looking for the crux of the reason Jones was let go, not the root of it, but the crux of it, I'll get to the root in a minute, then I think we found it. Jones notes that he would have preferred that the administration brought the students and him together so that they could have tried to work out the differences in the spirit of education, in the spirit of what good intellectual people should do when there is a problem, which is engage in discourse and try to resolve it. But instead, Walters revealed the real problem with Jones, which is that he was bad for business. And I want to temper that comment, which seems pretty strong, by saying that there are simply professors who are not going to serve the best interest of the university. Professors who might just be bad educators, professors who might be problematic in other ways, and a university cannot in any way be oblivious to those kind of factors. But is Jones really that educator who's such a threat to the institution? A prestigious, once acclaimed educator who may have not recognized the sands shifting beneath him quite enough, but who nevertheless was quite the expert and, it seems, quite well-intentioned in wanting to teach organic chemistry. In the words of, and I'm going to mess this up, so please forgive me, Parimjit Arora, a chemistry professor who worked with Jones, quote, the deans are obviously going for some bottom line, and they want happy students 
who are saying great things about the university, so more people apply, and the U.S. news rankings keep going higher. End quote. And so while the caliber of Jones's teaching relative to the nature of the students is probably a little murky, and maybe there's some fault on both ends there, I think perhaps a little more on the students than on Jones, but it's very hard to tell, NYU's move here is much clearer. An institution that wants good rankings and lots of applicants and happy parents, perhaps more than it truly wants rigorous courses in organic chemistry. As Jones said, I could have made the course easier. I was pressured to do that, but I wouldn't do it. And this, it seems, is the repercussion, if not the punishment. But while that might be the crux of the matter, as I said, it's not the root. And the root of the matter brings me back to Demolition Man. I don't know if you guys know it, but you're, uh, you're out of toilet paper. Hey, did, did you say toilet paper? Oh, they used handfuls of wadded paper back in the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy that you're happy, but the place where you're supposed to have the toilet paper, you got this little shelf with three seashells on it. <laughs> He doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> I can see how that could be confusing. I don't believe it. Jones, it seems, is a bit of a time traveler. Academia, it seems, was his time machine. When he started teaching, he wiped his ass with toilet paper. And after a prestigious career, somehow woke up again to find that he didn't know how to use the seashells. And he was laughed at and mocked. And he became a point of ridicule, if not now, by NYU at least, condemnation. Well, I don't know what to say to all of that exactly. And I must hasten to say that Demolition Man is a pretty crappy metaphor for anything. That said, I will end on this. In the clip you're about to hear, which immediately follows the one I played, Stallone discovers not just that everything he says is monitored, but that cursing is in fact a penalizable offense. And it's penalized such that a machine prints out a paper ticket for every curse word that he utters. Well, this is how he handles that situation. And I'll leave you, my good listeners in Hedagogy Nation, to draw whatever conclusions you will. Is that you, Spartan? No, my God. I remember when you were a snot-nosed rookie pilot. They finally grounded me. Shit. You're a damn good flyer. You are fined two credits for a violation of the statute. I'll be right back. They seem to be friends, yet he speaks to him in the most profane manner. Well, if you had read my study, you would know that this is how insecure heterosexual males used to bond. I knew that. Thanks a lot, you shit. So much for the seashells. See you in a few minutes.